Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. When putting together your list of the greatest baseball players ever, the names Ruth, Mays, Mantle, Cobb, Williams, and Aaron are always at the top. Yet, when you go back through the history books, statistical data, and listen to the players of yore, there's another name that appears on this list. In fact, it's a name that Bill James has put in his top five of all time. A name that I bet so few of you have ever heard of. Oscar Charleston. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the amazing career of one of baseball's greatest players ever, Oscar Charleston. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. The 2020 baseball season is just getting underway as spring training is in full swing and the debates about who is baseball's greatest are, yet again, in full swing too. Now, like I said in today's tease, the regular list of characters is always spoken about Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, etc., But there's another name on that list that most baseball fans are not familiar with, and that's Oscar Charleston. In fact, when Oscar started playing, he was routinely compared with Ty Cobb. But as the 19-teens turned to the 1920s, instead of being compared to Cobb, Oscar started to draw comparisons to Babe Ruth. Hank Greenberg said, Charleston was one of the best ball players I have ever seen. He could hit and field with the best of them. The great Negro League star Buck O'Neill once described Oscar as Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Tris Speaker rolled into one. Now those are some great accolades. So, who was Oscar Charleston, and why have so many of us never heard of him? Well, that's tricky, but let's begin with this. Oscar Charleston played in the Negro Leagues. Sure, most have heard of great Negro League players like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and O'Neill. But Charleston's best days actually predate those stars, and not only that, Oscar's best days came at a time 
when, well, there was very little structure to the Negro Leagues. And we're going to get into all of that with today's guest, Jeremy Beer, who recently released a biography on Oscar entitled Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Hero, published by the great folks at the University of Nebraska Press. This book not only goes into detail about Oscar, but it also paints a really great picture of the times, how the Negro Leagues worked, and who the major figures of the times were. Jeremy's book recently received a few awards as well, including the prestigious Seymour Medal, awarded by the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre, for the best baseball history or biography published in the preceding year. So, congratulations to Jeremy for such an honor. Now, before we get into today's show, I do have a favor to ask. You know, I created Sports Forgotten Heroes back in April of 2017. This is a hobby. And as the years have passed, downloads have increased. I couldn't be more thankful for all of you who listen and download Sports Forgotten Heroes. But I wish I could get even more downloads. If you have friends or family, if you know anyone who might enjoy this type of content, please let them know. When I was thinking about launching Sports Forgotten Heroes, a friend of mine told me that if you're interested in this type of content, then there's got to be other people out there who would be interested as too. Well, with the amount of downloads, his point was correct. But I think there's still more of you out there who listen to podcasts and don't know that Sports Forgotten Heroes exists. So, please spread the word. Let's see how big we can make this podcast. Like I said, I do this as a hobby. So I don't have the marketing dollars that the big boys do. And anything you can do to help would certainly be appreciated. Let sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter. Follow at Sports F Heroes. I make posts every day about the forgotten stars and my guests. Check out Facebook for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page and share it with your contacts. Subscribe to Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or visit sportsfh.com. Now that website is where I have more information about all my guests, more information about the forgotten stars I talk about, links to the books my guests have written, and you could always make suggestions, comments, or more. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. And if you can, a short five-star review would be wonderful as well. Thanks for your help. All right, today's show is really jam-packed. I want to get right to my interview with Jeremy Beer as we talk about the great Oscar Charles. Jeremy, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled you could join us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Hey, man, your book, of course, at least to me, is phenomenal. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I love the way you have weaved in and out of Oscar's life to help paint a picture of what, well, the times were really like and who the people were in his life and, of course, his career. 
This Thanks. being, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was really, I mean, it not, it was, it really is a good book. This, yeah, yeah. This being sports forgotten heroes. While we'll talk about some stuff off the field and what the atmosphere was like, we're going to concentrate, I think, more about his career when possible, what it was like for him mm-hmm. on the field and just okay. how good a ball player he was. So I'd like to begin with this. Why are these names so much more known, at least in my mind, than Oscar Charleston, Satchel Page, Buck Leonard, Cool Papa Bell? Josh Gibson, if Oscar is regarded by so many as the greatest player in the history of the Negro Leagues, then why is he known by so few? It's a great question. Um, So the one thing all of those men have in common that you just named is that they all came a generation after Oscar. Uh, They were still... um, uh, uh, alive and in a couple of places, pl- in a couple of cases, playing when uh, integration happened in 1947 uh, in, in the National League, and it, obviously Satchel starts with the Indians in 1948. So their stories um, were fresher in in people's minds when historians and researchers started to get around to documenting the history of the Negro Leagues in the 1970s and really in the 1980s and, and, and on. Uh, Oscar uh, was part of an earlier generation, and he's just one of many great players from that earlier generation and the generation prior to his that have been uh, unjustly forgotten. So that, that's one reason, just a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is, you know, Cool Papa Bell had a great nickname. <laughs> he <laughs> I, also, I... <laughs> that helps. Um, he also had the the... He, he figured in some of Satchel Page's stories, and and then of course Satchel was Satchel. There's just no one ever like him. Incredibly charismatic, quotable, uh, you know, ditzy, uh, just this this incredible personality. Um, and Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson played together on the Homestead Grays, and uh, like a fearsome twosome. And Leonard probably wouldn't be as as remembered as as he is if it weren't for being paired with with gibson and then also leonard again was around people could talk to him he could interview him he wrote an autobiography so those would be a lot of the reasons mm-hmm. um uh, another one would be all of those i think all of those men and certainly others that have been remembered had descendants uh if you want to be remembered having children really had really, you know, helps. And Oscar didn't have any children. Great uh, he's also separated and estranged from his wife. So she didn't have much to say uh, by the time people were getting around to trying to document this stuff. So um, those would be some of the reasons uh, why Oscar has faded into obscurity, whereas those names and not many others beyond those names uh, when it comes to the Negro Leagues um, have remained somewhat in our collective memory. Mm-hmm. How did you discover him? And why, why did you take this project on? Uh, Bill James. <laughs> Bill James, uh, you know, the father of modern sabermetrics, great mm-hmm. baseball historian. Um, he, uh, in 2003, published the new Bill James Historical Baseball Abstract. And it was uh, a new edition of a book he had published a decade or so earlier. But this time, 
Uh, he did a top 100 players of all time list, and he included Negro Leagues players. And being Bill James, he had done a lot of research into uh, the Negro Leagues, and he wanted to, you know, his goal is to suss out just how good these men were. And number one in his list is Babe Ruth. Number two is uh, Honus Wagner, I think. Number three is Willie Mays. I may have those two mixed up. But you all heard of those three guys. Mm-hmm. Number four, number four was a guy named Oscar Charleston, and I had never heard of him. Um, nobody else I knew had ever heard of him either. Mm. <laughs> it was just, it was astonishing to me. How could the fourth greatest player of all time, uh, according to no less a uh, person than Bill James, be someone I've never heard of? So I just started digging in to him what I could find online, which wasn't much. Um, and that was really uh, disappointing. Uh, and then um, uh, I discovered he was from Indiana, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I thought I knew all the great athletes from Indiana. I was like <laughs> worshipped, worshipped at the altar of Larry Bird. And, you know, I knew about the Big O, you know. Uh, my dad is always talking about the Big O growing up. Mm-hmm. So um, turns out there was another Oscar from uh-huh. the exact same neighborhood just a generation <laughs> earlier. And no one knew anything about him. So um, those are the reasons why. I mean, it just there wasn't much on him. What there was was – uh, contradictory, and just you could tell, sort of like half legendary. Just he hadn't been taken seriously as a historical figure. So uh, eventually, I decided I just try to write his biography myself. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said earlier, it's really good and really in depth. What kind of ball player was Oscar? Paint a picture for us. You know, just how good was he? Yeah, the best I can do for people who are following today's game would say he's a left-handed Mike Trout. Uh, he, he he dominated the game uh, in the nineteen late, starting in the late teens and throughout the nineteen twenties in a similar way to kind of how Trout does today by being so good at so many things. Uh, he could he was a five-tool player, uh, perhaps you know the original. <laughs> you know mm. he could hit for average. Uh, we uh, the best statistics we have. Uh, available today suggest he hit against top tier competition in black baseball. He hit about 350. Um, he uh, hit for power. He was called the Black Babe Ruth in the 1920s because of that power. Uh, he stole bases. He stole something like um, uh, uh, 300. I think we have 300 stolen bases or more than that for him uh, in the Negro Leagues, or about exactly that. In fewer than half the plate appearances of Willie Mays. So um, tells you just how prolific he was as a base dealer. Uh, and he was a, if anything, he was pointed out for his defense more than anything else. He played a superlative center field, uh, shallow center field, just behind second base, people said, um, and made a, a habit of making the kind of catch that Willie Mays made fa- famous in 1954 in the World Series, that over-the-head basket catch, right, mm-hmm. that anybody's seen. Uh, Oscar did that apparently with some frequency. Uh, actually it turns out that was a Negro leagues thing, uh, all around. It wasn't just him, that that was playing shallow and learning to catch the ball over your head. Like Mays did in that world series is something that was a tradition in black baseball. Uh, I think a lot of people know that, but anyway, he was really good at that. And he was, a, and he had a good arm. That was the weakest of his tools, but it was, it was good. So yeah, he was Willie Mays before Willie Mays, mm. you know, or, or a left-handed Mike Trout. Just a dominant guy, Barry Bonds without the steroids. I mean, I, <laughs> about the best I can put. That's who he was. And then add to that like an edge like Bryce Harper competitively uh, and sometimes a, a temper 
like Yasiel Puig. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's kind of the whole package you have with, with Oscar. But he was, a, he was a, a, a leader too, like someone that people gravitated towards and, and was managing a player manager by the time he was 27 years old. So really had a very unique package in his totality. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you compare him to a guy like Trout. Uh, you, you mentioned Bonds and, and Willie Mays. What about his power? How strong was he? I mean, tell us about his power. And, and like you do in your book, if you can't explain some of his legendary blasts, I mean, this guy could hit the ball a long way. And we're talking about the early 1900s and 1920s. Yeah. Um, guys didn't hit the ball that far. Yeah, he was, he was among the first to realize um, to, that you didn't just have to you know, slap your way around the bases. Um, he, when he comes up as a rookie in 1915 with the Indianapolis ABCs, uh, he immediately is called, you know, this, this amazing slugger uh, because he hits like two home runs in his first few games of playing. And it was a time when there were very, very few home runs hit. So he gets a reputation very quickly for that. Um, you know, later, a few years later, he, he hits the longest home run in, in, you know, in a number of ballparks histories. Newspapers are always saying like, it was the longest home run ever hit at Harrisburg's Island Park. It was the longest home run ever hit at this, at this park. It was, <laughs> this happens over and over. Um, and it, it seems like his hands, well, he was just, first of all, he's built like a tank. He's built like a linebacker. That's the other kind of mm-hmm. trout like uh, comparison. I like, you know, trout, he's a thick guy, really strong uh, torso. Uh, Oscar was the same way. And his hands were so strong that he could rip the cover off a baseball with his bare hands. Wow. It, it was so rough and so strong. That's well attested. I thought that was a legend. But I talked to a couple of people in person. They said, no, they'd seen him do it. <laughs> wow. Uh, he also one time got in, a, uh, in, in an accident. He's driving a big Buick in the south and the car, some hit something in the middle of the road. The car flips over. Fortunately, nobody's hurt. He and a bunch of players, but he gets out of the wreckage and he's still holding pieces of the steering wheel in his hands. Like his <laughs> hands were stronger than the force, you know? Wow. <laughs> so it just, he was, he, some other people say his hands were like uh, rough as Brillo pads. It just was a strong, rough guy. And it, and it played out on the field in terms of his uh, home run pr- prowess. Um, in his best years, he would hit like, um, 15, 20 home runs by our best, again, by our best of our knowledge today, 15 or 20 home runs with that's again in about 300 plate appearances. Mm-hmm. So he was like a, he probably was like a 30 to 40 homer guy uh, in, in, if he had like a complete major league season going and, you know, who knows what he would actually have done in the majors. Although, although we know that he hit better against major league pitchers in postseason exhibition contests than he did against Negro leagues pitchers. So um, we, there's every reason to believe he would have done, very well but yeah he was uh he hit the ball hard he had and he had strong arms and really strong hands Mm -hmm. and there are some major leaguers who had some very complimentary things to say about oscar who actually faced him in exhibition games yeah dizzy dean said uh he could hit that ball a mile i think that's the exact quote and dizzy dean played against him in 1934 i think it was right after the gas house gang on the world series uh, uh, Hank Greenberg said he could hit the ball as far as anyone who ever played. Uh, um, 
Honus Wagner said he was as good a player as he'd ever seen in all the years he'd been in baseball. Wagner said that in the early 1950s. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the core, and those aren't, those aren't nobodies. You know, there, there are a number of other instances of people, uh, white observers, uh, as well as, as of course, uh, black observers saying that he was as good as anybody who ever played and, and on occasion also saying that he hit the ball as hard and as far mm-hmm. as anyone who mm-hmm. ever played. Jeremy, there are a few people whose names we might hear throughout today's podcast whom many might know, some might not. So let's do some name association <laughs> and 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 tell me who these people were, perhaps, and how they might associate with Oscar. And we'll start right. with C.I. Taylor. C.I. Taylor. Well, I'm sure... If people haven't heard of Oscar Charleston, they've never heard of C.I. Taylor, but he <laughs> deserves to be remembered, too. He was the owner and manager of the Indianapolis ABCs. He was one of four Taylor brothers to play uh, in the Negro Leagues and to be associated with the Negro Leagues. Um, and he was uh, one of the main rivals of a man named Rube Foster, who was uh, – the best-known owner and manager in the Negro Leagues in the teens and 20s and had previously been a great player. Uh, Foster owned the Chicago American Giants and managed them. Taylor was in Indianapolis, and they had a great rivalry. Uh, C.I. Taylor was a a military man, college-educated, very civically-minded, and did as much as anyone to build up uh, uh, black baseball in the early part of the 20th century and he was the man who signed Oscar Charleston, and he was his mentor and somebody that Oscar thanked uh, repeatedly uh, in, as his uh, career you know, wound to an end in his managing days for having um, t- you know, tutored him mm-hmm. in, in the ways of baseball. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned Rube Foster. Can you tell us a little more about Rube? Rube uh, was a great pitcher. Uh, in the very early days uh, of the Negro Leagues, uh, like by the turn of the century in the first 10, 15 years or so, I guess it'd be more like the first 10 years of the 1900s, uh, got into uh, managing and owning his own team in Chicago, uh, was known for his competitiveness. Um, he would argue at length with umpires all the time and would get any edge he possibly could to win a game. Uh, it was said that he used his pipe to signal to to runners on base or hitters at the plate what what plays they should run. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, well, larger than life figure and one of the best known uh, people in in black baseball in the first part of the 20th century founded the first formal Negro League called the Negro National League mm-hmm. uh, 100 years ago in mm-hmm. 1920 in Kansas City, and that's a uh, fact. The I believe today. It's either today or yesterday or tomorrow, but I think it might be today, is the exact date of the 100th anniversary of the uh, founding of the Negro National League. So very important figure from that respect. He really um, uh, had great administrative uh, uh, abilities and vision and um, was at the forefront of the movement, very kind of Booker T. Washington idea of if they won't let us in, we'll build it ourselves, and we'll and we'll do it better. And, and nothing could, you know, show more that we deserve to be treated with equality than that. So mm-hmm. that was Rube Foster. 
And for those listening, in case you're wondering when today is, <laughs> I do these shows quite far in advance. Today is actually February the 13th. No, no problem. Now, yeah, I, don't... I thought as soon as I said that, I was like, wait, people aren't going to know what today is. Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> now, I don't know if I'm going to get this name correct. Dizzy Dismukes. Uh, Dismukes, I think. Dismukes, okay. Yeah, Dizzy Dismukes. Another person who, gosh, I wish he was remembered more, and I wish I knew more about him. Um, he was a teammate of Oscars on the ABCs in the late teens and I think into the early 20s. Was a great submarine pitcher. I think I think he pitched sort of like Kent Sokolvi or somebody like that. Oh, really very cool. down low. Yeah. In fact, he was called an underhand pitcher. And so when you're reading newspaper accounts at the time, you're picturing somebody winding up and pitching like a softball, you know, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's how it was. I think he would just, he dipped just so far down, uh, like someone like, uh, to Colby did. Um, yeah, Dismukes was a, a really good and effective pitcher and he went on to actually manage a little bit, uh, the Dayton Marcos. He managed one once or twice. I think the ABCs a little later in the, into the twenties after Oscar had departed, was highly respected despite the name. You think he might have been really sort of like a you know, mm-hmm. Disney sort of guy. Uh, but um, he went on to be um, like the traveling secretary for the Kansas City Monarchs. I think that was his title. And basically it was sort of like at the front office for the Monarchs, which was you know one of the most famous and well-run uh, uh, black baseball teams in the, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. He may have been there when Jackie was there, actually. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, he's. I don't know much about his personal life. I, I all I know is that Oscar's wife. Uh, there's a picture of Oscar Charleston's wife with Dizzy's uh, wife in, in Oscar's personal photo album. So uh, I know he was married at one time. Uh, and that's about all I I know about him personally. Mm-hmm. Okay, couple more. Ed yeah. Bolden. This is fun because nobody ever asks about these guys. Oh, so I'm okay. Glad well, that you are. oh, good, good. <laughs> Ed Bolden. Ed Bolden worked in the post office. <laughs> he worked in the <laughs> post office in, in Philadelphia or the suburbs of Philadelphia. But he was a really smart man, studious, serious, earnest, and somewhat self-important um, and kind of humorless. But he, were, he got involved with uh, black baseball uh, sometime in the 20s, I think, early 20s. And came uh, to control a, a club called the Hilldale Club. Mm-hmm. They never really had a – sometimes they were called the Daisies, but most of the time they were just called the Hilldale Club. They were based in Darby, Pennsylvania, uh, the west, west side of Philly. And um, uh, he, he built the Hilldale Club into one of the um, most competitive uh, black baseball teams in the country, and especially on the East Coast, and played uh, a role uh, in the in the, uh, several leagues. I believe the, gosh, uh, the Negro American League later. I think mm-hmm. um, maybe the Eastern Color League before that. I'm starting to get hazy, but yeah, it was the uh, ECL. Was, yeah, thank you. So he was, you know, um, it wasn't larger than life like Rube, Rube Foster. Uh, he he never lit up a room when he walked in. Uh, he just, he didn't seem to have that kind of charisma, but he was just so administratively solid that he was a good baseball owner, a baseball club owner. He didn't have any money. Uh, so he, I think he always had to have white partners, which sometimes caused him trouble. Uh, he, there were two ways you could have the capital to run a successful black baseball team for the most part. 
Uh, one was to be involved with the illegal lottery, the street lottery called the numbers. Uh-huh. And the other We're going to get to that. Okay, great. And the other was to have a white partner. That was pretty much it. You know, it wasn't like um, there just weren't enough, at least not enough, who were interested in baseball of black, you know, uh, businessmen or businesswomen who had made, you know, were making money in a legitimate business or had made enough money in a legitimate business to um, run a team. So that's how it was usually done. Okay. Cumberland or come posy? Cumberland Posey. Gosh. Uh, another great character who deserves his own, definitely deserves his own book. Really competitive. Was a great basketball player. He's, he's been, he's a member of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Uh, as an early basketball pioneer. Great player in Pittsburgh. Son of, now he, he's, here's the counterexample to what I just said. His father was a member of the, of the elite in Pittsburgh, especially the black elite. He was a, uh, he owned a, uh, coal business, I think some, some, indu- some industrial concern, uh, Cumberland Posey's father had made a fortune. And, uh, so, so Cumberland Posey jr. Was raised in, uh, uh comfort, uh, which is very rare among figures associated mm-hmm. with the Negro leagues was well-educated. Uh, but it was, he was, competitive as, as anything always dressed in knickerbockers and like a driving cap like he was just going out to the golf course and um he started a uh, uh um uh, and owned and managed a club called the homestead grays in pittsburgh uh and uh, was a big rival of another man named gus greenley and his pittsburgh crawfords but yeah mm-hmm. posey was a really forceful and successful owner um uh, who helped develop a lot of different careers, and he's the man who brought Oscar Charleston to Pittsburgh in 1930 to play for the Grays, and also the guy who discovered uh, Josh Gibson. Right, okay. And the last one I want to talk about is a guy you just mentioned, Gus Greenlee. Gus Greenlee was uh, the son of uh, a physician, is that right? Uh, this his brother went on to be a physician in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow made his way to Pittsburgh. Um, I think after the war, World War One, uh, ran liquor, uh, bootleg liquor during Prohibition, and worked his way up, sort of in that. Uh, I think it's not too much to say the underworld, uh, and but was very successful at it. And didn't he and run some numbers? He sure did. He was the numbers king of Pittsburgh yep. and was really one of the most successful. Uh, numbers uh, uh, kings uh, in America. And uh, he got involved with black baseball. Um, it's not entirely clear why, probably as a, as a way to launder money from the, from the numbers, as a way to sort of maintain and burnish his reputation in Pittsburgh. Uh, in um, 1932 uh, is when he um, uh, really put the Pittsburgh Crawfords onto the stage as a, as a big time team. He had sort of been involved kind of a little bit with the team called the Crawford giants, as they were known before then, uh, maybe donating some money for uniforms and that kind of thing. He sort of progressively got more involved with them and then sort of took them over. Um, yeah, he was the numbers King of Pittsburgh. And in 1932 decided he was going to have a big time team. And he lured Oscar Charleston from the grace to come be the manager. And, they got Satchel Paige to join. Paige was already on the team because Greenlee had kind of found him in Cleveland. And they got Gibson to come over from the Grays, and they added Judy Johnson and Cool Papa Bell and Judd Wilson and all these guys and made it a star-studded team. He built his own 
stadium in Pittsburgh, which was a great thing because uh, otherwise teams usually played at Forbes Field, which was nice, where the Pirates played. But they couldn't dress in the uh, locker room mm-hmm. or shower because of the segregation uh, segregationist um, uh, ideas. So uh, it was it was great to have your own place. Um, and it was in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. And yeah, he was he was big time, and he made the Crawfords big time. Uh, but it, near the end of the Depression, uh, he suffered some financial losses that the police started to uh, tighten up on his operation. And he ended up selling the Crawfords in 1939, um, I think, for a, a pittance mm-hmm. to a ownership group from Toledo that included a man named Jesse Owens. Right. And I have Jesse Owens later on I want to talk about <laughs> because okay. you certainly uh, uh, bring up Jesse in your book. And and that one's a little mind boggling to me. But we'll get yeah. there. Let's pick up the story of Oscar from the time he faked his way into the army. And by fake, I mean, he got himself into the army when he was just 15 years old. Why mm-hmm. did he want to enlist? And and did he get to play much baseball while he was in the army? Right. Well, we don't know exactly why he wanted to enlist. He didn't leave us a diary of that, but um, we can guess. So he had graduated from the eighth grade uh, in 1910. Um, and he apparently did not go to high school. Uh, his sister said he, he had only completed the eighth grade. It was probably over the next year or so that he was a bat boy for the ABCs and who knows what other work he, he picked up. So I think he was just uh, drifting. Uh, didn't You couldn't play on the baseball team uh, in the integrated high school at the time. The high schools were integrated in Indianapolis, but not the sports teams. So that, that may have played some role in his decision. But in any case, at the age of 15, in March 1912, he enlisted in the Army. That was three years before you were supposed to be allowed in, but he lied about his age, which is a lie he had to continue on every like Army application he had to keep filling out mm-hmm. for the rest of his life. <laughs> which I don't, sometimes you see like 1896 is his birth year. is like crossed out and 1893 is put in instead because they had to be consistent. Uh but yeah, either the army believed him, or um, it's also possible that one of his parents consented to it and signed a, a form. But it was always said that he had lied his way into the army, and I think that came from Oscar. So mm-hmm. I think we can take that to be the case. And he was shipped to the Philippines. And uh, yeah, fortunately, the 24th Infantry, which was the unit he was with, all black uh, infantry unit, uh, had a, had a baseball team. And they got a reputation as being a really good team on the island. And in 1914, they were invited to join the Manila League, which was a semi-pro baseball league based in Manila that had four teams. Uh, The All-Army team, the All-Navy team, the uh, All-Filipino team, Native Filipinos. And then it wasn't All-Marines team, but they got shipped out. So uh, the 24th Infantry was invited, invited to take their place. And that's the team that Oscar uh, debuted with his, his made his professional baseball debut with in 1914. Two future Hall of Famers on that team: he, Oscar Charleston, and a man named Bullet Joe Rogan. No relation. Great, no relation. Uh, <laughs> no relation. He that's too bad because he was one of the greatest two-way players yeah. <laughs> uh, ever. Uh, kind of Babe, Babe Ruthish. So yeah, they were really good, uh, talented uh, team that. They did pretty well in that league, despite the fact that 
Charleston would have been only um, uh, 17 years old. Rogan was like 19, uh, and they were really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so he serves, and then when he gets out, he knows what he wants to do. He wants to play baseball. So yeah. he heads back to his hometown of Indianapolis, and he makes yeah. the Indianapolis ABCs. Now, yeah. this was an independent team. So a lot of questions I have for you here. Okay. Um, like you said earlier, uh, you know, he, he was – he lived in Indianapolis, and most people today would associate, you know, that area of the country with basketball. But back in the late mm-hmm. 1800s and early 1900s, it was really a hotbed for baseball. So yeah. talk about baseball in Indianapolis back then and how popular it was. And then I'd like for you to follow that with why it is not – nearly as popular there today <laughs> well i don't know if i'll know the answer to that last question I, I wonder that myself but yeah you're right so there was briefly right around that time uh in the federal league the upstart federal league which was challenging the american league and national league mm-hmm. uh, for players uh indianapolis had a team in that league uh the hoosiers i believe they were called uh and it had several uh uh strong black teams the abcs were the strongest of them and the indianapolis indians and the indians were a, a you know uh, the high miners team that actually had been uh, briefly in the old national association a major league team in the late 1800s so yeah there were a lot of teams around it was very popular of course baseball was the most popular sport in the country mm-hmm. uh, at that time um and uh as to why it's not as popular, and of course, basketball was in its infancy. Um, yeah, basketball. Why did basketball suck all the air out of the room in Indianapolis <laughs> and Indiana as a whole? That's a good question. Maybe it's just because uh, Indianapolis just kept um, it never returned to being a major league mm-hmm. city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I don't know because you know Cincinnati, ninety miles away. You know, baseball has always been huge yep. in St. Louis. Uh, I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, it's not like there hasn't been baseball talent in Indiana either. Mm-hmm. Ed Roush and Max Carey and Kenny Lofton and Gil Hodges. and There's a ton of guys, you know. Yeah, and Oscar uh, Charleston. And not to mention Oscar Charleston, right. Uh, and several other Negro Leagues players too. So I don't have a good answer for you on that one. I wish I did, Warren. That's a good question. <laughs> hey, uh, so getting back to Oscar – you know, yeah, he was sure. young when he got there, when he got to Indianapolis, and he was used in a variety of ways from pitcher to outfielder. What were the early returns on his talent? Yeah, so he starts out as a, a left-handed pitcher and uh, does pretty well, um, but he's so good at the plate. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. He shows a lot of promise at the plate. It's a couple of home runs early on, as I mentioned earlier. And really just so good in the field, just so incredibly sparkling in center field that within like a month, six weeks, uh, C.I. Taylor has decided uh, he's, he's going to be like a spot pitcher at best. He's, he's, he's going to he's my starting center fielder. So um, he's, he does. He continues to pitch occasionally over the next several years uh, uh, when needed to someone's hurt or something or just a blowout. Uh, but. Um, I think it was just so good in center field that Taylor thought, you know, that that's this guy's position. I'm not going to mess around with 
him you know on the mound too much and on the mound he was good but not great it wasn't Babe Ruth it wasn't like he was somebody who had a sub three ERA you know over 150 innings that were not going to pitch anymore it's uh, it was it was good but not great as my reading of the statistical record mm-hmm. so um yeah the early returns were for the first two or three years of his career that he was the best center fielder a lot of people had ever seen um he seems to have been one of the first guys to master and display the one-handed catch, which mm-hmm. we all take for granted today. But, of course, mitts today are two times bigger, three times bigger than they were when Oscar was playing. Um, they were they were no hardly any bigger than your hand. Uh, and so to catch a ball one-handed, especially because there was no padding, yeah. um, was pretty freaking incredible. And he was one of the first. They, people talk about how it looked like he was just swatting at flies out there, which is where we get you know this term. Uh, swatting at the ball and would just catch it like that. Um, it was really amazing. And then going back on balls, he really amazed people at too, like jumping at the fence. Again, things we take for granted today, robbing home runs over the fence. Um, with with a glove like that, that is crazy. Yeah. Yep. It's almost like, yep. like you said, it's almost like playing barehanded. And it, it helps if you have hands as strong as his, I guess. I can't imagine. Yeah, that. when you could tear the cover off a baseball, <laughs> yeah. uh, probably not a lot would hurt those hands. Hey, tell us a little more about the ABCs as far as how good a club they were. And mm-hmm. this being an independent team, who did they play and how good was the competition? Right. So all teams were independent before 1920. It, there was nothing but independent mm-hmm. uh, playing in black baseball. Their top competition, uh, sh- the Chicago American Giants, for sure. That's Rube Foster's team. Uh, and then there were teams in um, uh, Detroit, uh, 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 New York, uh, like the Lincoln Giants would have been one of the best teams of that era. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there were other really good Midwestern teams at that time. None are coming to mind. There was there was also a team called the Chicago Union Giants. Mm-hmm. One of the most one of the most, as everybody knows, who's looked into this, like. So many Negro Leagues teams were named the Giants. Did it get yeah, you? Know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at the confusing. Chicago American Giants. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. sort of code. I think it was a sort of code early on for um, newspaper readers maybe to know that this is a black team. Uh, and it just keeps getting used uh, maybe for reasons of prestige. And people don't really know. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so that those would be some of the teams. And they were really good. They, they won uh, a mythical – uh, a national championship in 1916 uh, by beating uh, Rube Foster's club in a season-ending series. Uh, championships being decided essentially in the press, sort of like college football championships used to be decided, ah, you know? Okay. Um, so it's just sort of consensus, like this will decide it. And if, if no one could kind of, you know, launch a reasonable, you know, uh, counter argument, then everybody just would sort of accept that, that was the championship. So mm-hmm. uh, they were good enough to do that in 1916. They were, they were very competitive um, uh, throughout the late teens and in the early 20s. They only won that one championship in 1916, but they were really competitive uh, almost all the time during that kind of 10-year period. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the Negro Leagues themselves? I mean, during the early days of the Negro Leagues 
And I was not aware of this until I read your book. I mean, the way I see it, there really wasn't a lot of structure. I mean, they stage no. a lot of, as you just said, championships and nothing right. regular like the National or American League did in right. Major League Baseball. And players jumped from team to team. How did all of this work? And at what point yeah. did a more structured setup come about? Well, everything you're saying is true. And it was, I think everybody realized it was less than ideal. So before 1920, there's no team or no league, excuse me. Everybody just creates their own schedules. It's not really known what the schedule is two weeks out or three weeks out, certainly not a month or two out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so yeah. you wouldn't, so he could have had even more impressive stats than he did because you got to figure a lot of what he did was never reported. Well, yeah, we know that we're missing a ton of games. We're, we're actually – so here's a quick digression. Negro League statistics today in 2020 are better than they've ever been, including mm. in 1920. Right? I mean they've never been as good because thanks to the digitization of, of, of all these periodicals and newspapers and then like an army of researchers going back in and finding box scores – we actually have, according to one good estimate I've heard from a leading Negro Leagues historian, like 70%, maybe higher, of, of box scores between major uh, black teams. Wow. So we're not, we may not be missing as many. Now, we're missing a lot of their contests, and here's how it worked. So the ABCs would play the Chicago American Giants. That's, a major, that's essentially like a major league contest. That's, that's top talent versus top talent. But then on Monday – they're, the ABCs are going to be playing Kokomo. Okay, Kokomo doesn't have a top-rated team. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like it's just like it's a white team from Kokomo. It could be a black team from Kokomo. And then they're going to play Logansport, which is even worse, right? And then up to Fort Wayne, and then back down to Indianapolis, and you know the Detroit Stars are going to come into town, and that's a major league team. So it's this mix. It's like if the Yankees are out on the road, and they're going to play, you know, the Red Sox, but then they're going to play the Portland Sea Dogs, and then they're going to play the American Legion team from mm -hmm. Bangor. You know, it's, it's just like – it's crazy, the range of competition. Now, the other thing that was different was um, it's like as if the American Legion team from Bangor today had two potential – like two potential all-stars on the team. The, the talent was not efficiently distributed in, you know, 100 years ago. You could be fantastic and, play, and working on the factory and playing for your semi-pro team on the weekends you know, and at, at three 30 when you're off. So it wasn't like you got sucked away into, uh, into the, the meritocracy. wasn't like this perfectly functioning thing like it is now. Um, so sometimes you'd run into a semi-pro team that's really, really good. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, that's why you'd see some surprising, uh, mm -hmm. uh, scores. So, but anyway, yeah, there's no structure. Uh, and there's, they're at that point, not probably even contracts later. There are contracts between players and teams, there's certainly no agreements that you can't steal players from other teams. And even if you did have a contract, who's going to enforce it? You know, what are you going to do? Um, so players jump all the time. Uh, it's just a very fluid situation. Uh, and it's not ideal from a fan standpoint because you don't know who's playing who. There's no statistic, statistics being kept. You don't really know how good people are, if there's a championship, all that sort of thing. So Rube Foster in 1920 his effort to start the Negro National League is an attempt to to make all this better, you know, uh, to have uh, like umpires, you know, mm -hmm. who have consistent rules and 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 you know are going to show up for the games. 
uh, to make sure the teams are going to show up for games because you're part of this league. That was another problem. You know, you might have a game scheduled for Thursday. Eh, it's too expensive to get there. We're not going to come. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's not good. <laughs> you know, it's not good for anybody. So it was. It, it did help start to solve a lot of these problems, but it was never that the, the Negro National League and then later the Negro America League, the Eastern Color League, and all 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 the leagues that came up over time were never as strong as the National League or the American League and, and so-called organized baseball. They just didn't have the mutual trust between owners wasn't there. Um, the, 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 the faith that the league was going to last and work wasn't there. Um, some of these sort of intangible things that you need for a league to be successful that we don't even think about, um, just the money. The money wasn't there to, to really promote the leagues and make it seem worthwhile to the owners all the time to be part of it. So they were always kind of rickety. You know, they're more, they, some years they'd function better than others, but sometimes, you know, they'd peter out before the schedule was over and there'd be no championship series at the end of the year. Mm. Um, they, they tried to play a Negro league world series and did starting in 1924, but it was kind of hit and miss. Didn't always happen. Um, it's just not enough money be the way, not enough money, not enough mutual trust. The, 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 the men who own teams in these leagues were not, um, natural followers, you know, they were collaborators. They were, they just tended to be sort of lone wolf sorts of fellows anyway. Um, so there were a lot of things that made it hard mm-hmm. for there to be a really strong centralized uh, Negro League. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said earlier, you know, owners of Negro League teams, they weren't always all African American. I mean, some were right. white. Why did yep. white men? want to take ownership of these teams. And by the way, as you noted in your book, one of these guys was the grandfather, if I follow correctly, of Vince McMahon of WWE (laughs) fame. That's right. That's right. Jess Jess McMahon. Yep. New York Lincoln Stars. Uh, Well, to make money is the the answer. I mean, it's it's the same reason why uh, white record producers were signing black acts in L.A. in the 1940s and 1950s. You know, they saw a market opportunity. Um, it wasn't out of philanthropic reasons, as far as I can tell. That doesn't mean they were bad guys. Although, uh, interestingly, uh, one of the two white co-owners of the Kansas City Monarchs, a man named Tom Baird, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and that's a little bit strange <laughs> to consider. Also said that Oscar Charleston was the greatest player he'd ever seen, black or white. So uh, human beings are, are, are complex. Yeah, I guess um, so. Yeah, uh, that only came out uh, fairly recently, that, that little data, datum about Tom Baird. But yeah, it was, it was just to make money. That it was, they saw a market opportunity. Uh, so J.L. Wilkinson is among their most famous. Um, and, and one of the interesting uh, 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 people associated with the Negro Leagues was a woman named Effa Manley. Effa Manley was, uh, owned the Newark Eagles with her husband, Abe Manley. Effa Manley was biologically white. She had a, a white a biological father hmm. and a white mother, but she was raised by a black stepfather with hmm. her white mother, and she chose to identify as black. So that's a little interesting fact. Yeah, about the Negro yeah it's really interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, and then a lot of times the, the white men behind the teams weren't owners, but were backers, financial backers, or maybe they were bookers. Nat Strong is the most one of the most famous of those 
uh, characters. He also played a role with the um, in, in the world of basketball. Uh, but he was uh, on the East Coast, and uh, he controlled a lot of venues. That gave you a lot of power. If you could control who could play at, at uh, um, Ebbets Field, that's mm-hmm. a bad example because he didn't have control of Ebbets Field. But you know, one of the, some of these venues uh, that were um, highly valued, then you you had a lot of pull. You know, you could um, call a lot of the shots. That was mm-hmm. often resented. That was resented a lot in the black community. That guys like Nat Strong had so much power, mm-hmm. um, but there wasn't a whole lot that could be done about it sometimes. What about money? I mean, what kind yeah. of money did these guys make? Did they have to have mm-hmm. side jobs during the season when they were playing? Did they mm-hmm. ever make enough money that they didn't have to work a second job? What about money? So here's the shocking thing. Uh, I was really surprised. Certainly by the 20s and the 30s, the average Negro Leagues player uh, made more than the average white worker in America. Wow! Uh, over over this four or five months of the season, so they actually got paid pretty well um, for the times. They didn't get paid as much as white major leaguers, um, that's for sure. Uh, but no, they did not have to have side jobs during the season. Uh, they first of all, you were playing every day during the season, and probably oftentimes twice a day, and sometimes three times a day. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there wasn't any time to have a side job, and there was nothing as lucrative as getting another game. So you had your regular salary from your team, and then you might make more from from uh, barnstorming games that weren't sort of controlled by your team's owner. So you got a piece of the gate for those. So they did pretty well. The average Negro Leagues player uh, made pretty good money, uh, for certainly for with respect to their own community and even compared to the average white worker. Uh, they had prestige uh, within the African-American community um, because of all the travel they got to do, you know, um, the places they got to see and because of the the money they got to make. Um, So that it wasn't, it was grueling in the sense that the travel was just tough. It was Mm -hmm. grueling in the sense Mm -hmm. of like, if you were hurt, there's no disabled list, you know, don't get hurt. (laughs) It's the only answer, you know, you're probably going to be out of a job at least for a while. Mm-hmm. It was grueling in the sense of when you were traveling and playing against white teams, you know, all sorts of racist insults might be hurled against you. It's hard to get food or places to stay in the South in particular, but in, in not only in the South. I mean, there were there were certainly the sorts of um, daily um, uh, sorts of reminders of, of the realities of, you know, uh, racism, and segregation in America. Um, but having said all that. And that was the truth throughout the African-American community. G- given that that's the baseline reality, um, it was sort of a better life than certainly the average African-American mm-hmm. had at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, during the offseason, yes, everybody would get a job. Uh, Oscar usually just went and played more baseball. He would just go to Cuba and um, or something play more called down the there ho- the Or something called the Hotel League. Yeah, well, that was another winter league. He played in Palm Beach, Florida. Um it was a uh, – I forget whose brainchild that was. It basically, the deal was you got an easy job during the day at the hotel, um, and then you played baseball uh, as well. You know, as, as all part of the same gig. And there were two hotels, and they each fielded a team, each fielded a black team, and uh, for the entertainment of the winter visitors to, to Palm Beach, Florida in the, in the teens and the 20s. Yeah, he, he played there. A lot of stars did it. Um, 
Yep. Puerto Rico, a lot of players to Puerto Rico, others mm-hmm. like in Mexico. Um, and, and Oscar himself was sometimes like a porter uh, at, for the Philadelphia Railroad uh, or Pennsylvania Railroad, excuse me, or he was a chauffeur. Um, that, that kind of thing was very common. But that was supplementing what was otherwise a pretty decent income, mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. it or not. Hey, let's go back to the beginning, getting back to Oscar. Uh, talk about his heritage. Was he Indian, as you you were talking about, or French? Was he African-American? What about his heritage? <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, it's really weird. So when I started this project, I, I discovered that he was listed in um, like a dictionary of American Indians in sports. Uh, as one of as as, as one an American Indian who is hmm. partly American Indian, and I was like, really, that's interesting. Well, when he when he chased that down, it all comes from the testimony of just one person, uh, his niece, Anna Charleston Bradley, said that to an interviewer. Actually, she said in a letter to a man named Larry Lester, and it kind of went kind of had took off from there, had a life of its own. But she's the only source for that, so. Um, Larry isn't sure what to make of it. I'm not sure what to make of it. I will say in the 1900 census, his father's father is said to have been born in France. Now, I don't know. I, it was so hard for me to make any sense of that. That could just be a, a, an error, although it's an odd error to make. Um, but there's some chance that on his father's side, maybe there was a French trapper who married an Indian woman. This sort of thing happened. There was a French community in Charleston, South Carolina, where Oscar's father was born, probably where his last name comes from. So it's possible that he that um, he has some American Indian ancestry, but um, impossible to say, or at least was impossible for me to find out. And um, uh, it's it, uh, yeah, I, why Anna Charleston would say that I don't know. It isn't true. So I just put it out there as a it's certainly possible, and if it's true then that puts him as one of the greatest American Indian, you know, one of the greatest athletes with American Indian ancestry in American history, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Tiger Woods and Johnny Bench and those kinds of guys. Now, did he have a good relationship with his father? Uh, no idea. Yeah, that's one thing that's just not in the record at all. Um, his father doesn't, uh, I could only find a little bit about him. I couldn't even find his, his death date or death certificate. Uh, he said to been a laborer. Uh, in Indianapolis, which makes sense. He, he he came up to Indy with his wife uh, in 1896, just before Oscar was born. Um, we just know that he worked hard. We, we know one time he um, he had to come and get his wife out of a sticky situation, Mary. Uh, Oscar may have inherited his temper from his mother, mm-hmm. Mary. She she once greeted a deputy. Uh, on her porch with an axe. Uh, and um, <laughs> apparently that was not appreciated. She was taken to the court and uh, Tom, Oscar's father had to come down and, and uh, plead with the court for leniency, which, which he was fortunate to receive. But Mary was, uh, despite maybe having a temper was actually very well regarded. She, we know she went on to have a leadership position in a uh, black sororal organization in Indianapolis had even a national leadership position with that organization. So she must have been very able. We just don't know much about Tom. Mm-hmm. Now, they moved around a lot. What was life like for, for, for young Oscar? Well, we can presume that it was tough. Um, they lived in, in, you're right, 10, 11, 12 different places, uh, almost a different place every year in Indianapolis while he was a youth. 
um, those places were in one of two principal, <laughs> excuse me, one of two principal black neighborhoods in Indianapolis, but mainly in the Indiana Avenue neighborhood. Um, we know from others' testimonies as to what those houses were like uh, that they weren't they weren't mansions. Uh, they you know they were shotgun shacks, yeah, you know, probably unheated in terms of like central heating. There's probably like an oil uh, heater. Um, they were certainly not cooled uh, in the summer. Uh, kind of tar paper roof kind of situation. Uh, no, probably no indoor plumbing. So it was a, it was a, you know, he grew up poor, like, uh, like most African Americans and not a few, um, European Americans did in the early 20th century, uh, without much of anything, mm-hmm. uh, as far as we can tell, there's no reason to think otherwise. Mm-hmm. And he had a bunch of brothers and sisters. He had nine living brothers and sisters. So, uh, there was Big a lot family. of, there were a lot of mouths to feed. Yep. Where or how did he learn to play baseball? You know, probably sandlot ball in Indy. There, we have some testimony from others who grew up around that time of playing with him uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, it was said that he was a bat boy for the ABC, so he probably learned a lot there. So, yeah, I think it was just in the air. There were a number of semi-pro black teams um, in Indy at the time, and the ABCs, as he was growing up, were right in the neighborhood, just a couple blocks away. So it would have been very easy for him to um, learn the game uh, from from those guys and from his Sandlot peers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like we said, he, he went into the Army at an early age, came back, uh, gets work w- or joins the Indianapolis ABCs, and then he gets married at a young age. And that marriage didn't last. Who did he marry and why didn't it work? Yeah, um, he married a woman with the very unpromising name of Hazel Grubbs uh, in 1917. (laughs) Despite the name, it turns out she was a very accomplished young woman. Uh, She's in the papers a lot uh, before they get married for her singing abilities and her theatrical abilities. Her mother, she she came from a very good family. Her mother taught piano lessons and was also a singer. Her father was a principal of one of the uh, black schools in Indianapolis and had was highly educated had been at uh, Tuskegee Institute with Booker T. Washington. Um, so what that, that's interesting because it fits a pattern for Oscar. He was always um, going up, trying to go up in the social scale. I don't mean that in a negative way. He just, he had ambitions. He had social ambitions. He was very intelligent um, and able and charismatic and he was the sort of person who could convince an, you know, a, an accomplished young woman like Hazel Grubbs from a good family to marry this poor ball player. Uh, that, that tells you a lot about his personality. Uh, no, it didn't last, and I, God only knows why it didn't last. We, um, uh, we know um, Oscar wasn't always the most easy man uh, to live with, but we don't know. We just know that they separated within like a year, a year and a half or so and never lived with each other again, and were divorced a few years later. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, he liked to move up in social class, and you know he ended up serving a second time in the Army, and if I got this mm-hmm. right, he came back and got married again and mm-hmm. really moved up in social class with his second wife, a woman by the name of Janie Blaylock, who was yeah. she? And and talk about their courtship, their marriage, and you know, moving up in social class. 
Yeah, same, very similar pattern. Uh, uh, they met probably in Harrisburg, although Janie late in life remembered it being in North Carolina, so possibly it happened there, although I don't know how that – I wasn't able to figure out how that would have happened. But she came from a very good family too. Uh, her father was a, uh, a minister in Harrisburg, um, was spoken of as someone who might one day be a bishop in the uh, AME church. Uh, he was a college-educated person. Uh, uh, her mother also came from a good family. Uh, and so this was, yeah, sort of a leading Harrisburg family. Janie herself had gotten her teacher certificate, a two-year degree from a college in Harrisburg and, um, was very intelligent, very pretty, uh, very well-spoken, very cultured. Um, and, uh, Oscar, yeah, kind of hit it again. And, Again, it was such like a bad match on paper that they had to elope in order to get married. Uh, There's no way her father would have consented to it, uh, I was told by her descendants. So um, they eloped to St. Louis and got married there, but uh, ended up living for a number of years in her with her parents in, in Harrisburg. So, it's, yes, it's another example of his ability to win the affection of, of people in a higher social stratum. Mm-hmm. So. Oscar really, and I know we're jumping around a bit, but it's sort of like yeah. Oscar's career. He jumped around quite a bit. I mean, Indianapolis, yeah. then the New York Lincoln Stars, and back to Indianapolis, and then, you know, yeah. on to the Chicago American Giants, and Detroit, and St. Louis, and back to Indianapolis. Yeah. How does he end up in Harrisburg? And really, when he gets to Harrisburg, he meets Janie, marries Janie. But he goes to play for Harrisburg in the, I think it was called the ECL, the uh, Eastern Colored League. Mm -hmm. And this is really where he enjoyed some of his uh, greatest exploits on the field. Yeah, so he meets Janie in 1922, uh, marries her pretty much right away. They actually are in Indianapolis in 1923. He's with the ABCs. And... um, couple of things. Uh, the ABCs are sort of falling apart. C.I. Taylor has died and his wife, Olivia, uh, is not um, uh, apparently up to the task of, of running the team. There's money issues or whatever, but it's clearly the ABCs are, gonna, are not going in a good direction. And I'm sure Janie wanted to come back to Harrisburg where her family was. She's close to their family. So everything comes together. In 1924, a man named Colonel Struthers, who owns the Harrisburg Giants, Decides he's going to make them a big-time team and enter them into this new Eastern Colored League. And he lures Oscar to Harrisburg uh, to be the player manager for the team. And that was the other thing. Oscar really, really wanted to manage a team. Um, He was a natural leader and not a natural follower. So he was always happiest when he was the manager. And when he wasn't the manager, there was always a little bit of friction uh, with, with leadership. So... Yeah, he goes to Harrisburg. He's there for four years, 1924 to 1927. And Harrisburg never wins the, the league pennant, but they're always real good. And sometimes a couple of those years, they're really good. And Oscar in particular, I mean, this is in the middle of his, his prime. I mean, he, he puts up numbers, I'll just say, you know, 1924 in Harrisburg, according to our, or 1925, according to our latest you know, statistics that we have. Against top competition only, he hits 427 with a 523 on base percentage and a 776 slugging percentage. That's wow. If, 
that's really good in case anybody gets curious. <laughs> that's, like, <laughs> that's really good. Uh, yeah. So numbers like that or what he puts up in Harrisburg, just incredible. Um, and he's managing and managing a team means putting together the team. I mean, uh, he, you're, the managers of these teams were essentially also the general managers most of the time. So he had to recruit players and, uh, he's always doing that in Cuba and elsewhere. And, um, he made Harrisburg a big time team. They never won a pennant, but they were really good. You know, I, I cut you off a little earlier about Cuba. Tell us about the Cuban leagues because he played there for a couple of winters and he played on some pretty good teams. Teams, in fact, that were so good, sounded like the rest of the league would quit during the middle of the year because they yeah. knew they couldn't they couldn't beat the teams that Oscar was playing on. Yeah, that happened twice, I think. Um, he played in Cuba ten on 10 different occasions for 10 different winters. Uh, he played in the Cuban League, which was a very good league, about equivalent to the Negro Leagues in terms of its quality. So just a tick below the National League and the American League, and really just because of a lack of depth, not because of a lack of top-tier talent. And uh, he was—he built a reputation very quickly as being a, a, a star uh, in, in the Cuban League. He, he became a star, a household name. The uh, 1923-24 Santa Clara team, uh, known as the Lepers, the Leopardos, uh, that was the first team, as you were talking about, where uh, they were so far ahead of the rest of the league. And the league only consisted of three or four teams. It wasn't the big league. They were so far ahead, about halfway through the season, that the title was just given to them and a new league was started. Like a new season was started right away. And then they won that one too. So they won two championships that year. Uh, and then it <laughs> happened again in a, in a subsequent year with a different team where uh, they, they just stopped at midway and gave him the title and started something else. Um, so yeah, he was considered a, a big time star. There are um, uh, people, uh, there's a, a Yale professor, uh, Roberto Gonzalez Echeverria, who remembers his grandfather talking about Oscar Charleston and how, how, how great he was in the field and at the plate. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, he endeared himself to fans by how hard he played. And how intelligently he played, like, you know, tagging up from second base and a deep fly ball to center field and scoring, that kind of thing. Um, but also because he learned Spanish. He taught himself Spanish, taught himself to write, read, and speak Spanish in short order. An and intelligent so could, guy, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Just unbelievable. Uh, I mean, he's, he's translating articles in a scrapbook. You know, here's the Spanish clipping and then the English translation next to it in his hand. Um, yeah, intelligent and charming. Uh, and you know, he got, he, there, there are all sorts of stories about his time in Cuba being carried off the field, showered with money after one uh, game winning hit. There's a, a time when he gets into a, uh, um, a big fight. Uh, uh, he, he comes in hard at third base, spikes the third baseman. The third baseman's brother is a soldier, Cuban soldier who's in the stands. He jumps out of the stands and joins his brother and starting to try to take on Charleston. Fists are flying, uh, uh, the end of it all was that the, the uh, um, third baseman is sent to the hospital and Oscar, you know, walks off the field with the police to go to jail for the night. Uh, so <laughs> he won the fight, but lost the, lost the uh, legal battle there. Mm -hmm. um, but he got out of that. He, he, you know, made his case so eloquently uh, that um, he, he was issued an official apology by the Cuban army. He just, 
you can't make this stuff up. He was so charming. <laughs> you know, it's just the exact opposite of what you would think if you had a cursory knowledge of him from the internet. You'd think he was like a, a violent psychopath. Um, he had a temper, uh, like an Irish temper, I, I think. Of and he inherited way. it from his mother. Inherited from his mother, but he wasn't. But he wasn't angry. Right. right? He, he never. He, he, the way you wrote it is is like he never. He was never looking for a fight, but he never shied away from a fight. That's right. Yeah. I mean, occasionally his Irish temper, so to speak, would get the better of him, you know, and he'd um, get into it with an umpire or whatever. But yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't out there instigating, you know, he just, he played really hard and intensely. And definitely if a fight broke out, he was ready. He he enjoyed it. He loved boxing. (laughs) He was big and strong. This will be fun. That seems to have been the attitude. Hey, let's go back to Harrisburg. Their big rival was Hildale, and we talked about Hildale a little earlier, and they both played in the Eastern Colored League. But I get the feeling from the way you wrote this that the playing field wasn't always even, especially when it came to Hildale. Talk mm-hmm. about the rivalry between Harrisburg and Hildale and how some games they counted towards the standings, but some games didn't. And for Oscar and Harrisburg, they didn't necessarily know which games counted and which didn't until after the game was played. At least that was what they claimed. Yeah, at least that is what they claimed. Um, yeah, it was... This goes back to the pro- the entire problem of, of 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 black baseball league structure and uh, and management. Um, Hilldale's Ed Bolden, we mentioned him earlier, our postal worker, was the commissioner of the Eastern Color League. He also was the owner of the Hilldale Club, which was one of the strongest clubs in the team. And there were always charges uh, throughout the Eastern Color League's short history that, um, yeah, as you said, the playing field was tilted towards Hilldale whether they got to choose the umpires or maybe umpires because they were getting paid by Bolden gave his team the benefit of the doubt. Um, and there was also this question of which games are league games and which ones aren't. It's like if, um, uh, I don't know, uh, if um, I, went, I went to Indiana University, right? It's like if Indiana and Purdue played four games a year, but only two counted towards the Big Ten standings and two were just like independent ones. Hmm. Um, that would be weird enough. But it's even weirder if you don't know ahead of time which is which. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was the claim anyway that I was like, well, no, that one wasn't a league game. Wait, I thought you said before the season that the third and fourth ones were going to be league games. No, no, we changed that. It, 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 was, it was stuff like that, just like hijinks, shenanigans. And it really ticked off Oscar and the, and the Harrisburg Giants. And in 1925, he, he made a big kerfluffle about it with a newspaper, a letter to the editor of a um, – uh, influential newspaper called the Pittsburgh Courier, and it made a big, big hullabaloo. Uh, and it's just very indicative. It is not important in and of itself, but it's indicative of sort of the issues that were faced in black baseball. But it's also indicative of something else. So that was in 1925. So he and Ed Bolden are like, you know, you would think they'd be enemies because he goes after Ed Bolden and Ed Bolden goes after him. And yet just three years later, right after the Giants kind of fold, the Harrisburg Giants fold, who signs Oscar Charleston? Ed Bolden. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. And then it happens again. So he's playing for Hilldale in 1929, 
And um, he's been removed as manager by Bolden because uh, various reasons. And anyway, there's a, a argument on the field and a fight breaks out. And Charleston takes a swing at the owner of the Homestead Grays, Cumberland Posey, hits him in the jaw. Who signs Oscar Charleston the next year to play for him? <laughs> Cumberland Posey. So he was the kind of guy you could fight with and be mad at. And yet somehow he was charming enough or at least he was good enough, maybe both that you wanted him on your side. This happens again and again. It's really funny to see. Uh, there's no, no fight ever lasts with him. You know, you just, it wasn't the kind of guy that anybody really stayed angry at. It seems like. Yeah. So, so he goes from Harrisburg to Hilldale mm-hmm. and then he goes from Hilldale to the Homestead Grays. Um, one of the greatest teams in the history of baseball and, uh, I mean, they have such talent on that team. And, in fact, today, February 13th, on MajorLeagueBaseball.com, I read an article about how some people might actually think that the Homestead Grays might have been the greatest team ever, period, bar none, all teams, all leagues combined. So, mm. Talk about the Homestead Grays and how did Oscar wind up with them? So, yeah, Posey um, may have been offer he couldn't refuse was one reason. The other reason was that Bolden had, uh, in 1929, Hilldale had a lot of expectations, a big press buildup. They were going to be great. Uh, a man named Martin DeHigo was on the team, along with Oscar and some other stars. And they got off to a slow start. And Oscar was the manager and he got canned. Bolton, you know, sort of had a Steinbrenner moment. It's like, you're out. So Charleston, I think, was disaffected for that reason. Uh, and then Posey made him a great offer to come out the, to the Grays. He'd actually barnstormed with the Grays um, uh, the, the offseason just before that. So I don't know. They may have sort of patched things up if there was anything to patch up at that time. So um, he comes out to the Grays and uh, – they have a good team. Judy Johnson, the future Hall of Fame third baseman, is on that team. Um, some others like Vic Harris, who's a great outfielder. Uh, but what really uh, made them great um, – oh, and Smokey Joe Williams was one of their pitchers, another Hall of Famer. He was aging but still very good. But, uh, yeah, a young catcher named uh, Josh Gibson uh, uh, was uh, brought onto the team midway through the season. And even at 18, was just – phenomenal and so uh gibson's uh, addition to this already strong team uh, made that made that a truly great team and you know i think we can safely assume we, we know oscar was the de facto leader of that team that he played a, a large role in mentoring young gibson uh in 1930 and then the next year in 1931 and by uh, the way i i have it i have it called out i'm sorry to interrupt but they're saying no, it was okay. the 31 team and they had Josh Gibson, yeah. Smokey mm-hmm. Joe Williams, Oscar, mm-hmm. Willie Foster, Judd Wilson. Yes. And they're saying that this team was perhaps the greatest baseball team ever. It, it, it was really good. I and mean, they won a, a mythical championship in 1931. Uh, nobody, it was one of, again, one of those unofficial ones. Yeah. Also, double duty Radcliffe was on that team. Ted Page, a great, a great outfielder. Yeah. There was a lot of talent on it. I mean, I won't argue with you uh, about it. <laughs> uh, they were, it's certainly one of them, uh, one of the greatest teams. I think the one thing I would say about 
the, the all these black baseball rosters, the top of the roster was often phenomenal, mm-hmm. as good as any that we've ever seen. It would always have been the depth. That would be the question you would have, whether they could compete, you know, would, would they be as good as another great team over 162 games? Because they just didn't have the same bottom of the roster um, in terms of a sheer number of players and also just in terms of, you know, the, the talent pool. There just aren't as many African Americans as there are, you know, white Americans in America. <laughs> so, uh, they, you know, they often the bottom of the roster wasn't quite as good as it would have been in so-called organized baseball. But uh, at the top of the roster, uh, definitely, you go nine deep or so, maybe more. I think that's reasonable. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that you know Oscar joined Indianapolis when he was eighteen years old. And and that was back in 1915. And now we're talking about him being with the Homestead Grays in 1930 or 31. 31. And yeah. he's 34 years old and is still regarded as one of the best, if not best player in the Negro Leagues. His mm-hmm. staying power and his abilities for such a long period of time are incredible. Yeah. Again, yeah. just how good was he and how it look, he's slowing down a little bit at this point, yeah. but how does he stay in shape to perform at such a high level? Well, uh, it's a good, he, so first of all, he moves to first base. That's the one thing. When he goes out to the Homestead Grays in 1930, he moves out of center field where it's thought that he, he's getting bigger. And by the end of his career, he's quite fat. Uh, yeah, he's one of these guys who's still a really athletic fat guy, you know, like, um, uh, like, uh, Kevin James or something like that today. <laughs> like, wow, you're an athletic <laughs> fat guy. Uh, he was, so he was getting bigger around the waist. He moves to first base in 1930. So that's one way in which he sort of keeps his career, uh, going like many other people. Have. He's 33 years old. Uh, he plays a great first base. He's, he's lauded in, in the press for, um, his abilities over there uh, to stretch and scoop and do the things that first basemen do. And yeah, you're right. He's lost a little bit. Like, you know, he's not, um, uh, he's only hitting 314, 333, something like that now, you know, maybe, maybe the home runs are down a little bit from where they used to be. He's still very, very good. Uh, and that continues. He really doesn't 19, even through 1936, uh, when he's 39 years old, he's still a very good performer. And in fact, 1934, do I have this right? The first, Negro uh, League's All-Star game, um, I think it's in 1934, and he's the leading vote getter in in, uh, mm-hmm. in that you know for that All-Star game more than Page and Gibson, even though they've been around for several years by that point. So that tells you he was still highly regarded by fans uh, as well. Um, so yeah, he had great. St- yeah, really, you're right. 1915 through 1936, 22 years. Um, there's really not a clunker in there. Um, he's, he's always good. And sometimes he's, you know, a lot of times he's fabulous. Mm-hmm. So he plays for Homestead for a couple of seasons, including that 1931 season. And then he's on the Pittsburgh Crawfords. What happened? How did he get from Homestead across town to Pittsburgh? Well, Gus Greenlee happened. Uh, and, and Greenlee was able to offer a couple of things. One, money, a really good contract. But most importantly, being a manager again. Uh, you weren't going to be the manager on the Homestead Grays. That was Composey's position. Um, 
So, but Greenlee offered him, you know, you'd be the manager. And also, once again, that means you're putting together the team. So to be the man, to be the leader, something that Oscar was always attracted to. And so I think that's why he made uh, the jump over to Greenlee. And he really stays with the Crawfords um, until the end of the line with them, uh, mm-hmm. which would be 1940 or so. Now, one of the interesting things you wrote about was the fact that as he did grow older, and by the way, like you said, he had some really good seasons with Pittsburgh, and and then his playing time started to dwindle, and that's where I was getting to, is mm-hmm. that you said, I don't know if you used the word bored, but he just wasn't overly excited with playing every day. But when the game was on the line, he wanted in. He really had a flair for the dramatic all the yeah. way up to his final days uh, uh, playing when he was in his, you know, like 43, 44 years yeah. old. Can you give us yeah. some examples? Yeah, well, that was Oscar himself who said that to one of the players he was playing with one time that he said something like, yeah, I just don't get excited anymore unless the game's on the line, there are guys on base. <laughs> and so and he was on the bench and then that happened. He, he inserted himself to pinch hit and, and won the game with some game winning hit. Uh, yeah. He, he was, he was old, you know, his legs were going, he was big. He weighed a lot, um, but he loved, he still loved the moment. And there are examples of him, you know, inserting himself to pinch hit in a game when he's managing the Philadelphia Stars, like in 1943 or so, 1944. And um, uh, in fact, he was, um, they intentionally walked the man in front of him to pitch to him when they saw him in the on deck circle. Mm. And that was a mistake. He, he promptly wrapped the game winning hit of line drive that passed the pitcher's head. Uh, yeah, he had a lot of examples like that. He, um, you know, running, trying to stretch a double into a triple, even when he's big and fat and old, and he had to crawl the last 30 feet to third base. Players laughed about that. They thought that was hilarious. Um, same, similar time, he's on third base, um, and he's trying to score on a sacrifice fly to the outfield. He's big and fat, um, but he just gave it everything he had, and just plows into the catcher, you know, knocks him on his butt, ball rolls away, Oscar scores, you know. He, he, he loved to compete. <laughs> he loved to win. Uh, and he loved to be that guy, even when he was well beyond his prime. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeremy, when talking about Oscar's notoriety or why he's forgotten, you come across things like a name you mentioned earlier, Jesse Owens. And you mm-hmm. discuss this in your book, the fact that Oscar and Jesse spent more than a year together touring Mm -hmm. with, you know, one of the teams here, the Crawfords, Mm -hmm. and yet Owens never mentions Oscar in his biography. So talk about their friendship or being forced to work together and why Jesse never mentions Oscar. Yeah, it's, it's, boy, Oscar just had this kind of luck too. You know, it was just uh, even... (laughs) Uh, it just that sort of thing seemed to happen to him. Owens was really embarrassed later in life uh, in the in the 70s when he gets around to writing. He wrote two memoirs with the help of a ghostwriter in the 70s. He was really embarrassed at this point that at a t- there was a time in his life when he had to make money by traveling around with the Negro Leagues baseball team. And his role was to race people for the most part 
uh, before games, after games, uh, during games, sometimes motorcycles, sometimes horses even. <laughs> and it does not seem like a particularly dignified way to have had to try to make a buck. Uh, but he was making was, more bucks than most people, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. And it wasn't even just a black thing. Like white um, former Olympian sprinters, I, I discovered, were doing some of the same things. You know, it just um, it was a tough time, the depression. But it really it felt bad and felt undignified later, um, you know, in retrospect, I think, in particular. So Owens is not so he's not going on at length about this in his memoirs, but he really paints it as a, an embarrassing, um, humiliating thing to have to have had to do. Um, and he doesn't mention Oscar, as you say, or anybody else does even mention the name of the team he was traveling with, nor that he had an ownership stake with the team. Um, but it's too bad because what that represented to Jesse Owens in hindsight, it did not represent that to Oscar Charleston and the others in the moment. It, it wasn't, it didn't strike them as degrading and, and, and humiliating. It was, it was hustling, you know, uh, to make a living and entertain people and show your skill. Uh, so the same thing can look different, uh, in different times and different contexts to different people. Mm-hmm. And he just, he was unfortunate, uh, that, that Owens didn't, um, Sort of couldn't sort of climb out of the moment in which he was writing his memoirs and 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 credit Oscar for what he was and others who were you know on that team for their abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, he got kind of caught up in this um, generational difference in how the Negro Leagues were viewed uh, to a later generation like Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, uh, and you know Jesse Owens is sort of part of this in a way. Uh, they viewed a too ready accom- they were viewed as a too ready accommodation with with segregation and the realities of segregation. Um, but that wasn't how the earlier generation, which Oscar's a part, or people like Composey, you know, that's not how they viewed it. They they, they viewed the Negro Leagues as having built their own institutions, you know, uh, mm-hmm. giving the opportunity and a chance and showing uh, that equality was real on the diamond. And we'll, we'll show you right here. Uh, so it's a uh, it just looked different to different people. It's the best, <laughs> best way I can put it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, Charleston Owens traveled around for two separate seasons. Bump, you know, it's really kind of an amazing story. Uh, that's some of the greatest talent ever to be on a bus you know, on yeah. a back road in Ohio. Uh, and um, uh, you wouldn't know it though, unless you go back to the old newspaper clippings and, and read about it right there in 1940 mm-hmm. and 41. Mm-hmm. You know, one guy who did recognize how good the talent was in the Negro Leagues and decided to do something about it is a guy whose name we've yet to mention, Branch Rickey. Mm -hmm. When did he enter Oscar's life and what, if any role, did Oscar play in the color line finally being broken in Major League Baseball? Uh, He was sort of like this unofficial scout for Branch Rickey, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Rickey probably knew about Oscar uh, uh, starting in the early 1920s, if not earlier, when um, some black teams that Charleston was on, uh, barnstorming teams, played uh, barnstorming St. Louis Cardinals teams uh, in postseason contests in St. Louis. Uh, those were St. Louis Cardinals teams that Rickey would have been the manager uh, for the general manager of. Um, so I think he, he may have seen Oscar play in those games. We don't know for sure. Uh, he certainly would have heard about him because Oscar acquitted himself exceedingly well in those contests. 
So he knew about Oscar, and of course Ricky knew everything about baseball. He wasn't somebody leaving anything to chance, so I'm sure he knew his reputation very well. Uh, in 1945, uh, a new black baseball league got started called the United States League. Ricky became sort of one of its backers, and he agreed to have a team placed in Brooklyn at Ebbets Field. They were called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And um, all we know is that Oscar was supposed to manage a different team in the league, the Hilldale entry, actually. actually. But instead, as soon as it's announced that there's going to be a team in Brooklyn, all of a sudden he's the manager of the Brooklyn team. So um, it's possible that Ricky had something to do with that because we know later from his lead scout, Clyde Sukforth, that the Dodgers, quote, unquote, hired Charleston to um, find out information about black players. Uh, they had a problem. You know, it was not easy for white scouts to go to games uh, uh, between black teams, not be not stand out, you know, and Ricky didn't want to tip people off to what he was trying to do. Uh, he also couldn't get really good information and intel on players. We know how important that was to Ricky. He wanted to sign just the right kinds of people. Uh, and Charleston was very useful in that. So we know that Charleston helped uh, scout Roy Campanella. In fact, he assured Ricky and his scouts that Campanella's stated age was his real age. Uh, and he had just started really, really early. Ricky could hardly believe he was only 23. <laughs> um, and then uh, he didn't help with Jackie. Uh, we know that, but of like the six other, there were like six early signees for the Dodgers. I think Charleston probably did background scouting for at least three others, uh, Roy Partlow and Johnny Wright and Dan Bankhead, because they were all associated with teams that he, he'd either been with them on teams before or was soon thereafter um, when they washed out of the Dodgers system. So yeah, he was a scout, an unofficial but paid scout, it seems, for the Brooklyn Dodgers, probably making him the first African-American to be paid to scout for a major league baseball team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting towards the end of his career here, you know, um, as a player, as a manager, as a scout. And he played at least part-time into his 40s, and he could mm-hmm. still hit the ball. In fact, his last ever at batty, he, he got a base hit. But yeah. he was really focused on managing and coaching and even trying his hand at ownership. Talk about mm-hmm. Oscar's later years in uniform and and, mm-hmm. and and how he stayed involved in the game. Yeah, well, Ed Bolden again uh, brought him back to, to manage the Philadelphia Stars. And um, he has a couple of stints managing the Stars, but uh, primarily from 1948 through 1952. Uh, the last five years of the Stars' existence. Um, he was our manager, and he had really mellowed out by that time. The players who played for him during that time say how um, he was like a father figure to them. He was tough. He was stern, uh, but, he was, but he was someone they enjoyed playing for, and he no longer got into fights or anything like that. Uh, so he really um, uh, did everything he could to um, get stars players signed to major league contracts. He did a lot of scouting uh, in the South and elsewhere, try to find talent and then tried to interest major league teams in that talent. So a guy like Harry suitcase Simpson, whom some people might remember was a, was an Oscar uh, protege. And there were some others, no huge names. He never had an Ernie Banks or a Willie Mays on his stars teams. Um, they didn't have that kind of, um, luck or that kind of money oftentimes to make those kinds of signings. 
And then he ends his career uh, managing the Indianapolis Clowns in 1954 to a uh, Negro American League championship, um, uh, which was something that brought him a lot of satisfaction. And um, uh, he, he uh, right after that season is over, he, uh, he falls down a flight of stairs in his Philadelphia home, um, probably had a stroke or something like that, and he dies uh, a few days later in the Philadelphia General Hospital. Mm. Sort of a sad end to what was an absolutely phenomenal career. I got to ask you, Jeremy, when you were doing your research for this book, what surprised you the most about Oscar Charleston? What did you what did you uncover to go? Wow. I think what his personality is what surprised me. It just it wasn't what I expected at all from the little I had known before I started the project. I thought I, I may not. I thought I might not like him. Uh, you know, I, I thought he might be uh, sort of an unlikable, angry, you know, person. Um, and so I was really surprised at how just entirely the opposite the the case was. That the almost universal testimony to how. Um, charismatic he was and charming and uh, uh, had a kind of smiling, uh, happy personality, at least when he wasn't, you know, in the middle of an intense baseball game. Um, so it was really surprised and just floored by how how um, charismatic he was, what a natural leader he was, and how intelligent he was. Um, if somebody who, born in different circumstances, um, uh, would have been you know, today, again, that functioning meritocracy, highly functioning meritocracy, he would have gone to like a great college. <laughs> he would have been highly educated. You know, he would have been obviously a phenomenal athlete. Then he would have gone on to a, a sterling front office career or an on-field managerial career. He would have had – it would have been an interesting uh, – not that it wasn't interesting as it was. Uh, it certainly was. But, uh, you know, it would have been interesting to see what he w- might have been under different circumstances. But um, I certainly wouldn't want to. And the other thing that came to me, studying him and others, you know, these uh, Negro Leagues players didn't view themselves like primarily as victims, and I think sometimes we're unintentionally condescending uh, when we write about them and talk about them, say, think that their talents were were wasted um, or their you know, careers were wasted. That's not how they looked at it. That's um, it's. it's it wasn't wasting your career to have a career in the Negro Leagues. It just was a different career. And it was unjust not to have the chance to play in the major leagues, to say the least. Um, but it doesn't mean their their lives were wasted. And so it was it was interesting to see how proud these men were of what they had accomplished uh, under very difficult circumstances and the sort of depth of character that created among many of them. That was really that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I gotta tell you, Jeremy, again, the book is absolutely terrific i mean it's long but it is jam-packed oscar charleston the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player and winner of a couple awards you've got to be so proud of what you've done here uh you know it's i think it's it's great for oscar to get that kind of recognition i I see those awards definitely as uh uh, long due, overdue awards to him. So that's great. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. There is so much more that we could cover about Oscar Charleston, but, you know, three or four hours would be just a little bit too long. (laughs) Maybe another time. Awesome. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you, Warren. So how do we sum up the career of Oscar Charleston? Record-keeping was so poor for the Negro Leagues back when he played, especially during his prime years when the Negro Leagues really had no structure. His career batting average was a reported three thirty-nine. Now, you know, it could have been higher, could have been lower, but from what Jeremy wrote in his book, one could only guess that it was much higher, and same with his slugging percentage of five forty-five. Oscar was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1976. He drew comparisons to Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, the great Negro League players we have heard of, guys like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Buck O'Neill say Oscar was the greatest. And Branch Rickey thought so highly of Oscar that he hired him to manage the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers asked him to help identify players such as Roy Campanella when Ricky was looking to find the right player to break the color line. So, how great was Oscar? Well, I hope today's podcast helped paint a picture for you of how great he was. And I encourage you to get a copy of Jeremy's book, Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Hero, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press. That will help you understand just how special a ball player Oscar was. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to discuss the career of another very special player, only this time on the hardwood. A player, a star, whose career was tragically cut short. But he is still considered to be one of, if not, the greatest player in the history of his home country, Yugoslavia, and a player who made such an incredible mark on the NBA, Drazen Petrovic. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Jeremy Beer for joining us. We'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.